be easier for you to follow, okay? So I put that up in files yesterday, course schedule, okay? So, all right, by way of gathering us uh, this evening and forgetting about what we left behind, what we'll go back to, uh, by way of uh, reflection, I'm going to read to you uh, from a book called Pope Francis, Why He Leads the Way He Leads. Because tonight, we're going to be talking about pastoral leadership, okay? So um, this is um, an interesting book. I read it years ago. It was given to me as a gift because uh, an alum of ours, it's her brother who wrote it, and her brother was a Jesuit. Um, and as we know, Pope Francis is a Jesuit. So anyway, this book is on leadership, and I just chose a short section uh, for you to uh, listen to and meditate on as, I, as we gather this evening. All right, so the book, uh, just a little background, it was written by a reporter from the Roman Observer. Okay, so it's um, in the style of um, interview, report, etc. Uh, observations about the beginning days of Pope Francis. So this is what the author uh, writes. There were reasons to be intimidated by the task ahead. He's talking about Pope Francis, the newly elected Pope Francis. He had never worked in the Vatican and was surrounded by prelates who had not only made careers there, but took great pride in safeguarding its interior protocols. All the more stunning then that Pope Francis dispatched with tradition nearly a half dozen times in his papacy's first two hours, eschewing the red papal cape, keeping his own simple pectoral cross instead of choosing from the more precious ones offered him. Greeting the faithful in St. Peter's Square with an informal good evening instead of more formal language, asking the crowd's prayer for blessing before bestowing his own. And at the end of it all, leaving the papal limo <coughs> empty to join his fellow cardinals on the bus. The Roman Observer, the state paper of record for Vatican watchers, called the performance unprecedented, unprecedented and shocking. Except, he writes, it wasn't a performance at all. We were not watching someone trying to act like a pope. We were watching a person unafraid to be who he was, Jorge Mario Bergoglio, called to serve as pope. <clears throat> not someone donning a costume to play a new role. In fact, if anything discomforted him at all, it seemed to be the only the costume. Apparently a bit too regal to hang comfortably on his shoulders. Over those first 48 hours, 
two acquaintances made the same observation to me. Wow, that guy seems really comfortable in his own skin. Yes, that's it exactly. Be comfortable in your own skin. Know who you are, the good and the bad. And find the courage, not just to be yourself, but the best version of yourself. These are the foundations of self-leadership. And all leadership starts with self-leadership because you can't lead the rest of us if you can't lead yourself. And you can't lead yourself if you haven't done the work to know who you are. Amen. Profound words, profound words. Um, so uh, this, I don't know if I have this on your bibliography. I forgot to check, but it's it's worth a read. Uh, and remember, we're using the, the we're living in the Church of Pope Francis as the Vicar of Christ on Earth. Um, so that to me is an excellent model of leadership. He knows who he is. You know, um, I remember, and I'm telling this uh, secondhand. I didn't read it, but somebody once told me that somebody in interviewing Pope Francis said, with all of the weight of the church on your shoulders, how do you sleep at night? And Pope Francis's response was, like a log. <laughs> That's a person of faith as well, a person who knows who he is and is trusting um, in the uh, gifts that uh, bestowed on him by the Holy Spirit, his charisms, and he's trusting in that. Certainly a man of prayer that he uh, leads the way he does. So anyway, that's some food for thought for you. So last week we had a very vibrant uh, class, I think. Uh, I was well appreciated how you all contributed so much, or at least most of you uh, did that. But uh, as I said, tonight our topic is pastoral leadership, ministry, and practices of faith. All right, so here we're going to take just a step back for a moment. We always have to do that. It's like when you read a new chapter of a book, you have to remember where you ended off. So uh, we just want to visit and take a second look at mission that we talked about um, a few weeks ago. And as you can see on the screen, mission comes from the Latin word missio, meaning act of sending. Um, think, for example, of the dismissal at, at the end of Mass, right? Some of you who are familiar with initiation ministry might be familiar with the dismissal of the catechumens at Mass. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. But in both cases, the point here is that the word dismissal and mission are very much related and come from this Latin missio. Because in both cases, when we talk about the dismissal, for example, at the end of mass or the dismissal of catechumens, people are being sent to do something, okay? So catechumens, for example, 
are going forth to reflect more deeply on the word of God when they're dismissed after the liturgy of the word. And the assembly at the end of mass is sent to be Christ in the world. Uh, go in peace, glorifying the world by your life, for example, right? So mission, as you can see on the screen, is a specific task or a duty, a person's vocation or a group of persons working for a particular country, for example, all right? Now, I'm going to give you some examples um, that aren't uh, necessarily religious, all right? Some are, some are, but just to get, uh, to deepen this idea of mission, okay? Um, it's interesting. I know some of you listen to Bishop Barron because uh, it's come up. I was listening to a YouTube video this afternoon that he did uh, talking about, I think Word on Fire has a new book on the Second Vatican Council and how it's so misunderstood and um, uh, et cetera. But anyway, um, he, uh, Bishop Barron in, in the video today, he used the word um, missionary to describe the council and those were the words that he inherited from Cardinal George uh, he used to he, um, he was um, the Cardinal in Chicago he died a few years ago but he was a great mentor to Bishop Barron but um, in talking about the Second Vatican Council uh, Cardinal George referred to it as a missionary council so I thought that was interesting because that's a word, as you've seen in the joy of the gospel, that Pope Francis uses a lot, missionary disciples, etc. So tonight we're taking this step back and just looking at mission again in a little bit of a deeper way than we did when we talked about mission, mission statements and vision statements. So anyway, um, I just, um, in the 1590s, for example, um, Jesuits went to Japan and other countries. Uh, any of you are familiar with the movie, The Mission, when the, the Jesuits went to South America. So the Jesuits as a group, they went on mission to other lands. In the 1620s, uh, the word mission is used in a diplomatic sense. A body of persons sent to a foreign land on political business. That's also mission. Uh, the 1800s, a mission is referred to as an embassy. Okay? Just trying to give you different uh, meanings in the same word, how it's been used through the, through the years. 1929, we have a mission used to refer to the dispatch of an aircraft or military operation. Right? Sounds familiar. You've heard this before. And then in 1962, we have it referring to spacecraft, you know, mission control. So the word is used in, in different ways. Okay? That, that's the point of me just bringing this, this up to you. It's used both in the religious sense and in the secular sense. And also, as you're going to hear tonight, uh, particularly in recent years, it's used in business, all right? We're going to look at some resources 
And the church has learned a lot. Um, as I mentioned when we did the session on mission statements, the church has learned a lot about mission statements from the business world. So now we hear, or um, well, we used to hear more about it, but I'm trying to impress upon you how important it is that we hear about mission in um, our parish institutions. And certainly Pope Francis um, is in favor of that as well. So um, I had mentioned a few weeks ago um, a book by Maria Harris, which is on your bibliography called Fashion of Mia People, Curriculum in the Church. And what she is basically, just to refer to it again, she writes about all the activities uh, or the mission that go on in the life of the church. And her purpose in this particular book, which I had mentioned is a classic, is to help pastoral leaders understand that in and through our work in the church, our, our, our mission is about helping others to know that God dwells with us in all that we do. And that, that is the grace of God and the presence of God's spirit within us. And it enables us um, to be what we are called to be, all right? Um, and basically she, she writes, and this is a quote from her, our human vocation is to be in partnership with God to fashion even as we are being fashioned. Now, the words that I read to you relating to Pope Francis really echo this. Maria Harris is saying, we need to be fashioned ourselves, right? And in the words of our reflection was that we have to know who we are and then we can help others to do the same, right? So that's basically what she's saying using more artistic language, being fashioned, all right? Um, so this quote down here, okay? They devoted themselves to the apostles and the communal life, to the communion of the breaking of the bread and the prayers. Um, Maria Harris uses this verse from the Acts of the Apostles as her inspiration for writing about the activity of the church, um, which I think is, you know, this one line from scripture, scripture inspired an entire book. And a few sessions ago, we went through how she talked about service and liturgy etc different things if you remember proclamation um but the the thing i want to point out about her book um is that she uses this language of curriculum meaning the course of the church's life and that's mission its mission the activity of the church or the course of the church's life and our part in the mission flows from the realization of who we are. All right, I just, again, in the reflection from Pope Francis and from Maria Harris is knowing who we are. So first and foremost, we need to know who we are as the baptized. 
And we talked about that a few weeks ago. So you can see how each lesson that we're doing, each session, builds on the other. And, and I'm taking themes from other weeks and then incorporating them in a different way into our sessions. Um, so for tonight, uh, in this section, um, talking about our part in mission flowing from who, knowing who we are, first and foremost, as the baptized, a people called to a particular way of being in the world, right? And um, it's our baptism that um, calls us towards mission. So that, that's, that's important for us to realize. So everything we said a few weeks ago about um, uh, baptism, and we talked about confirmation and Eucharist as well, the sacraments of initiation, they are really the guiding theme, I had said, of ministry. And that, again, I'm bringing up again to you tonight. I hope that makes sense to you. But um, in other words, it's our baptism um, where we are sent on mission. Uh, to reveal the action and presence of God in all things and at all times. So that's the overriding mission of what we are about um, as pastoral leaders. All right? Okay, so pastoral leaders lead the activity of the church. All right? And that's the whole um, idea behind Maria Harris's uh, book, this whole idea of activity of the church. But there has to be leadership. And what we are going to be talking about tonight is leadership skills and uh, um, uh, different uh, principles of good pastoral leadership. Um, and recognizing that this is really a lifelong and a life-wide journey through which we really get on board with new and exhilarating experiences. Um, that we always have to be called, if you remember, I've said it before, that to go deeper. And that goes sort of hand in hand with never settling for what we always did. And the thing to remember here, and I have it in red, um, if we were in the classroom, I'd probably draw a better um, image here for you of overlapping circles, but there's our story and the Christian story, right? And pastoral leaders have to be able to articulate the connection well. Connection is a key word, um, and we'll talk about it when we talk about catechetical ministry for a catechist. Then essentially, as you'll see in catechetical documents, we're all catechists. We're all echoing God's word. We're all teaching um, uh, the Christian story. And making the connections for people is extremely important. Because if you remember, I said that that connection, when we can take our life and the church, the Christian story, and we put it together, who remembers what I called this when I went like this with my hands? Anybody remember the word I used? Conversion. That's conversion. When we can make the connection between 
our everyday life and our faith life. The Christian, that's what I mean by our story. We all have our own story. Then there's the Christian story. And when we can put it together, that's conversion. Well, we'll you're going to see this echoed when we talk about initiation ministry, the right of Christian initiation of adults. Uh, this will come up because that's uh, primarily what it's about for people. So pastoral leaders have to be able to articulate this connection well in order to uh, influence others to see the connection. All right, make sense? Yeah? Okay, I hope so. <laughs> All right. Um, okay, so a little bit of a review, uh, taking back still again we uh as i said we talked about baptism confirmation and eucharist um uh, discipleship mission and vision last week we talked about studying congregations all of that is the backdrop to ministerial uh leadership all right and that's important uh last week remember we ended by looking at congregations and the impact that they have on individuals. And I have to thank Vince. He sent me beautiful pictures of the cathedral in Bridgeport uh, when we were talking about the influence of buildings. And I promised him I'm going to incorporate them into my new PowerPoint that I'll have for next time. So thank you, Vince, for that. And so all of that is the backdrop or the background for us to be able to look at these principles of ministerial leadership or pastoral leadership or leadership in the church community, which we are all about here in this course. You know, uh, this introduction to pastoral ministry, uh, this is a key component of it. Um, talking about uh, leadership. Now, I, I have to be honest with you, this could be a whole course, and it is a whole course that I've taught in the past. So I'm, I tried to put in this course, just try to put together some key points about uh, leadership skills in ministry, and also to introduce you to some good resources, all right? So um, we're going to look at principles of administration and supervision. Uh, are any of you business managers? George, that's right, you are. Um, but, uh, George, you're right in a parish as a business manager. And then we have Jimmy, and who's a business manager in the secular world, right? They put it all together, and we've got something good going on, right? Um, so I think hopefully this will either be affirming uh, to both of you, I'm sure. And hopefully there'll be something new to add to your experience. So we, um, we want to understand uh, this whole idea of administration and supervision in the parish setting. And one of the important things is to understand the culture or the environment of the parish. And that's what we talked about last week when we talked about studying congregations. We can be a better pastoral leader when we really understand our parish well. And if you remember from last week, the culture of the parish means a lot of things, 
right? And we could even go back to a few weeks ago when we talked about mission and vision. We've got to, whether we have it articulated as a mission statement or written in the vestibule of the church, um, matters little. The idea is that there, we understand the mission of a parish. It works best when we, and you were all, I got a lot of good feedback on that um, session we had, that you were all interested in that, particularly if your parish didn't have a mission statement, that you saw how important it is to articulate it. And certainly as parish leaders, if we have the mission and the vision of the parish um, well thought out, we can lead better because we're going to understand um, the parish better and where we want to take the parish. Um, again, because we just don't want to settle for the way things are ever. Remember, as a church in general, we should always be in the state of uh, renewal, always ongoing renewal, okay? And all of this is what will lead to effective leadership in the parish. So I'm gonna introduce you to a resource that way back a long time ago when I took a course in uh, pastoral leadership in Huntington at the seminary, uh, the professor introduced us to this book, Corporate Cultures, The Rites and Rituals of Corporate Life. It, this is a book really about uh, secular businesses, and it's interesting that they're using these uh, churchy words, rites, R-I-T-E-S, and rituals of corporate life. But I just have a quote here from uh, this book uh, by Kennedy. Um, he says, understanding the culture can help senior executives pinpoint why their company is succeeding or failing. All right. Understand how to build and manage the culture can help the same executive make a mark on their company that lasts for decades. Now, Jim, I don't want to put you on the spot, but as a businessman that you are, would, what, what do you think of that? I, th I think, yeah, no, I, I, I think the, um, not only the culture, but the, the, the way people get along is extremely important. If people can't get along and operate as a team, nothing works. Ah. And, and, and if, the, if morale is high, everything runs phenomenal. But if morale is low because somebody's not pulling their weight, then it brings down the morale. So it's, it's like you said, it's the culture in the, in the business. Very good. Very good. And you're going to hear more of that, exactly what you said uh, tonight. And I'll give you some pastoral examples of it. All right. So, so the church certainly has and can borrow from the idea of what corporations are doing. And exactly what Jim said is absolutely right um, in, in parish life. Here's another book. Now, this one... Um, is um, more with the religious uh, setting in mind, with the parish in mind. Um, but he basically, uh, uh, Charles Keating, I believe he's a priest, um, but he says true leadership comes from self-awareness. Now, didn't we just read that about Pope Francis? 
that he was very self-aware, right? Um, and maturity of faith. The Christian leader is called to deepen their faith, continually engaging in the process of conversion. In other words, exactly what Maria Harris said, what um, was written about Pope Francis, that we need to always be working on ourselves. Uh, and then in turn, we can expand that to working with a team, um, but or else we're not going to be effective leaders. Uh, he goes on to say we need, and this is, an, this is a paraphrase. I don't believe it's an exact quote because I looked for it today, but I couldn't find it. So I think I paraphrased his work. We need leadership skills that correspond to the needs of the community. What that means is basically, um, you know, I could, you know, have my newly minted MA and I go into a parish with all these grandiose ideas of what I'm going to do. And I don't understand this, the needs of this community. Um, and if I don't, anything I have to offer uh, may not work for them. So the, my, the first task would be to understand the needs of the community here. So, and ministerial uh, leadership requires uh, professionalism. And that word being a professional, for example, really comes, and I, I've read volumes on this that we would do more of in a different course. But I hear an echo. Do you all hear an echo? Yeah, well, but, me. I had to log in on a different laptop. Oh, okay. That's okay. Uh, sometimes, yeah, when there's a double login. I okay. just keep getting kicked off. I'm not sure what's going on. Okay. That's all right. I don't want you to miss anything, though. That's Doug, right? Yep. Okay. You're good now for now? Okay. Yes, I used my laptop. Oh, okay. Good. Uh, so anyway, this word professional, when we use it, it really means to profess something, you know, that we're passionate about, no matter what it is. So, you know, um, whatever it is that we're we are profession is and we are professional, um, it really comes from meaning to profess. All right. And uh, again, that's it's a, another topic. But the whole idea of quote unquote professionals in the church you know, we rely a lot on volunteers, and volunteers are the back, uh, the backbone of our parishes. But we need professionals in this field of pastoral ministry that understand all of the stuff that we're talking about. Uh, it will just make for uh, better articulation, and um, um, the mission will be fulfilled when we have people, quote, again, quote-unquote professional, um, it will make for um, better parish life. All right? Doctor? Um, yes? I had one question about your, okay. um, your last slide. Um, okay, let me go back. Yes. How would we determine really, like, what the needs of the community are? Let's say... Um, would it be something that is being like asked by the community itself? Like, how are we figuring out what is needed most or how are we prioritizing things? Oh, that's an excellent question, Victoria. 
it's a combination of things in my experience. Number one, it goes back to last week when we talked about studying congregations. You know, looking at all of those things. You know, what makes up the parish? What do we have? What are our resources? But on the other end, I'll give you an example. When I worked in a parish, my last parish, um, we had somebody who was the director of adult faith formation. And she had designed program after program after program. And it looked so great on paper, but she brought it to the pastoral team, the pastoral staff, and she thought, for some reason, we're not being as successful with this as we thought we would be. So what we did was we put out a survey to the parish. What is it that you are interested in? What do you feel that you need to understand better in your adult life? And we got responses. So we took those responses and then we developed the adult uh, faith formation program around those responses. So that was just a way that we, we studied the needs of the parish. And I'll give you one example. One of the things was people didn't understand divorce and remarriage and annulment and everything. The church is teaching on that. So we did a lecture series um, one week nights, we called them wisdom nights. And we had one where we had um, one of the canon lawyers from the diocese came and talked all about divorce, remarriage and annulment and what it meant. I am telling you that the auditorium was had standing room only. Right. People had asked for this, but when we were offering other things, they weren't. So that was one way. So there are several ways you might, you know, some things you can detect by by studying your congregation, um, but other things you have to come out and ask by way of surveys, have them fill out with, you know, this was years ago, so we didn't have electronic surveys then. We had them just fill out a short questionnaire that we gave out at mass and said, please drop it in the collection basket for us, and we got a lot. So that's another way, but that's a great question uh, to, to uh, understand the needs of the parish. You know, when I had my newly minted MA degree and I went and worked in this very large suburban parish, I had uh, many ideas and I got there and I, um, in a very short time, and you're gonna see this comes up in, in um, Leadership, uh, leadership skills, kind of knowing your audience. Um, I was trying to move people along quickly. Uh, and this was in um, the early 1990s. And it was a parish that was um, not really attuned to uh, uh, the reforms of the Second Vatican Council. But my point here is, I quickly learned that my audience was not ready to do this quickly, that things had to be done slowly. So when we wanted to introduce renewal to the liturgy, for example, you know, to take them kind of out of 1970 <laughs> into where the church's vision is for the liturgy, I and people I was working with on a team of, uh, for this, um, we realized we've got to slow down 
and we've got to dedicate more time to education. So that was the needs of that particular community. They were, and then there's another community that my husband worked for on Long Island uh, shortly after that, where they were, come on, let's go, let's go. We want to know, we want to move, we want to go. And it was progressive and vibrant. And so that's understanding the needs. So that's a, that's a terrific question, you know? And, um, you know, a, as you'll see, there is something about, and many of you who um, do any kind of ministerial work or even teachers, uh, you know, you sum up your audience. There's a way to do that. And by your audience, I mean those who you are ministering to. Try to, you know, figure them out. Don't only have your agenda in mind, but try to, you can do this one, you know, just on a personal level, sometimes a one-on-one -on -one conversation with somebody, you might have something in mind you want to say, but as you're sitting there, you sum up the situation and you think, you know what, no, I'm not going to bring that up, you know? And the same thing is, is when you have a large group of people and either in front of you or when you're looking at a parish, is it the time to bring this change up or this, this uh, a new whatever we want to introduce? So that's what I mean by that. But that's, so that's understanding the needs. Dr. Ashton? Yes. Hi, it's Chris. Chris, yes, Chris. So what do you do about the disenfranchised? I mean, you, you take surveys, you, you talk to the parish, and you talk to the parish council, and you talk to the ministers, and it's all the people that want to be there. Mm -hmm. There's always quite a crowd that aren't there that you'd like to draw back in that you don't hear from, you don't, you're not getting their will. Maybe it's even some of what you're doing today that's driving them away or keeping them away. They just don't feel, we talked about welcoming and being uh, yeah. evangelists the other day. But um, what do you do about that? Because I mean, part of management is, is, is to bring people together. And, you know, I know our parish can be guilty of, all of us are kind of knee deep involved and fine, but how do we reach them and, and, and bring the others in? Because these surveys know your parish. You need to know both sides of the parish. The parish is there, and the parish that and the parish is there. That's that's terrific. That's excellent. That's a harder task because the other is like preaching to the choir in a sense. You know, they're there, uh, and you're getting to know them. But then there are the people you don't know that aren't there. Um, and that is the harder task, and that's the task of the new evangelization. And it, and it is hard. And I know we talked about this um, a few days. Uh, actually, somebody, I think, wrote about it in their in first integration paper. We didn't talk about it. I read it in somebody's integration paper. Um, I don't know who, I can't remember who it was, um, that there was, um, in one parish, there was talk about maybe going out into the neighborhood door to door, but then it was decided not to do that and to uh, do it a different way. But there was this desire for outreach. Yes, I, I, I did talk about it. That was you, Lucas, good, I couldn't remember. I, mean, I, did. I think it was you too, okay. Tell, just, you wanna just say something about it? Well, no, uh, there's, there's always, there's always that uh, uh, urge, may I say, from the Spanish community, and I, uh, if I'm ever ordained a deacon, I, I will have to keep in mind that I do serve two different communities, 
in one parish, Spanish mm -hmm. and English, and their needs are different and their approaches are different. Correct. Basically. Very good. That's knowing your the culture. It's it's very different. But yes, the Spanish community because there's there's a lot of uh, there's a large community that came uh, from Honduras and all Central America, and they are this is really the peripheries. These are the the poor people that live in trailer parks, and and then you know they don't know they don't have access to internet. They they work twenty six hours a day. Yeah. You know. And, and I, there's always that, that urge to go out there and let them know, hey, listen, we're here, you know, uh, in Spanish and just like at home with a Spanish-speaking priest. But uh, a lot of people also have reserve about going door to door. So how, um, just refresh my memory and tell, tell the class, uh, well, how, how did you uh, decide finally to try to invite people? The Spanish community are very, very devotional. Yes. And because we all, we all have our own uh, uh, virgin that we are devoted to, right? Uh, mm -hmm. The priest did not want to do it like to show up to their houses uh, to do a, a novena for any specific virgin. Okay. But, uh, but he decided to go with the divine, uh, uh, with baby Jesus. Oh, that's right. Yes. Which is welcome everywhere and does not have a, a flag next to it, you know, and uh, we went house to house and the, the families were inviting their neighbors to come over and, and, and do the novena and receive the blessing from the priest. And it's been amazing. Uh, last Sunday, I saw one of those young girls that, that is a product of that of that uh, um, a mission, uh, and she was a, a lector on last Sunday's mass, and she's just fourteen, and she mm -hmm. did an excellent job, and I felt great. So, people that um, you know experienced this, would you say that they actually came to your parish? Oh, a lot of them. Okay. A lot of them. Yeah, and them. and are staying and are active in. in okay. Good. So that's, Chris, that's one idea, actually going. And, you know, during the pandemic, some priests here on Long Island went, um, there was one priest that went in a pickup truck with the Blessed Sacrament and drove through the neighborhoods during the pandemic. So people, you know, you know, that's being, um, you know, a herald assigned to the world. And it's like when I, um, it's also, the story I told you last week in the parish of the person who called me up about the parent meeting, and I said, where did you hear about it? And they said, when I was serving pizza at a um, whatever school it was, I forget, in the public school. So it's about us talking about it to our neighbors, our friends, and not being afraid to talk about it. You know, very often uh, people are afraid to talk about their parish life, religion, you know, um, when they're in social uh, situations. Um, but we shouldn't be, you know. It goes back to Pope Francis, be yourself. I can remember being at a New Year's Eve party, and we're not party people, and that was probably the only New Year's Eve party I, my husband and I ever went to in our whole lives. And because it was a good friend of mine who invited us, and there were other friends of hers there that were 
just acquaintances of mine. And this was a time where I was uh, studying for my MA at the seminary in Huntington. And I remember just casually saying something about, well, when I go to the seminary. And somebody said, what? What do you mean? You go to the seminary? Tell me about it. So, you know, it was a situation where I didn't hide it. I wasn't afraid. And then I, you know, explained it, you know? So you never know. Uh, you never know. Um, so be yourselves. And, and again, Chris, that's something we teach other volunteers, other people who are there. We teach them to do that. And if every, imagine if everybody brought one person to church with them, you know, invite or just invited them. You know, for every one of us were to say to somebody that we know hasn't been to mass in a while, why don't you come with me? You know, that, you know, sometimes they feel um, much better uh, being with somebody than just walking by in by themselves. You know, I had that experience with my daughter-in-law before the pandemic. Uh, she'd meet me at four o'clock mass every Saturday, and it was just something so uh, something she really wanted to do, but with two babies and everything was finding it hard. But then she just finally said, oh, we could do this, you know? So it's, you know, be yourself, talk about it. And that's a step, but that's a great question because uh, that's the huge task of the new evangelization. How do we reach the people that are not there? Just one other, uh, I know I tell a lot of stories, but they're all true. And I think that they teach us something. Uh, when I worked in the parish, I used to have to go to these things called deanery meetings. And it was all parish leaders from different parishes, areas that we'd meet together. And quite frankly, sometimes they were dreadful. But anyway, I remember this particular topic came up once. And one of the parish leaders at the meeting, a professional for years, she said, well, my pastor, and this is not a, this is an observation, not a judgment. I'm just trying to teach you a lesson here. I don't want you to think I'm being critical. I'm not. Um, she said, well, my pastor wants me to focus on the people that aren't here. And then she went on to say, but I don't have time for that. I need to focus on those who are here and I'm not, I just told him I'm not going to bother with people who aren't here. So you see the attitude? That's the right attitude. We have to care about those people. Look, Jesus said he would, as the good shepherd, he would go leave 99 and go for the one, right? Well, sometimes we have to do the same or we're called to do the same. You know, we, we have to move beyond lip service where this is concerned. You know, it's easy to talk about this and talk about this, but we're being called to do it sometimes, you know? So Lucas, I think what you did in your parish is great, you know? And of, of men, all I would have to say that probably most of us are dealing with multi multicultural parishes. I know on Long Island, that is definitely the case in the Diocese of Rockville Center. It certainly is in Brooklyn and the Archdiocese. Um, where, you know, we're, we are dealing with um, diversity and we have to understand the needs of everybody that we are ministering to, you know. 
um, that's important. So great questions, great observations. Dr. Eschenauer, one of the things that yes. we've done in the in the past, not this past year because of the pandemic, but during uh -huh. during Ash Wednesday, going to the train station, and you'd be amazed at how many people you don't see at church, but they're Catholic and they take the ashes, and hopefully that spurred something in their in the head, and maybe that might bring them back. But that's like an outreach type of thing. Oh, that's that's terrific. You know, you saying that, it spurred something else for me. Things like weddings and funerals are another way because at a wedding or a funeral, you are bound to have people that may not have been to church coming to these events. And if they have a good experience, I bet at least one of them is going to say, wow, I want more of that, you know? So it's always that whole idea of hospitality, always, because you never know who's there at, at any, and liturgy is a wonderful, um, uh, you know, example of, um, to use in this case, um, because we never know. Sunday mass, you never know who's dropping in to visit. Um, if they have a good experience, they'll probably come back and say, wow, I want more of that. So, you know, there are very, um, you know, creative ideas um, that are practical, that uh, takes a team of people that, that understand what we're talking about uh, to do. Very good. Now, go ahead. Before you start, before you start, um, yes, it's pretty nice to mention a funeral. Um, yes. Obviously, most of you know I, you know, had the funeral mass for my dad. Yeah, we and, all know. Um, yes. And, um, you know, walking in, walking into the church even during a pandemic to see how, how crowded the church was, um, you know, and I guess being zoned out, so to speak, you know, some people, you know, clicked to my eye quickly, others didn't. Uh -huh. but after the fact that some people came and said, you know, I haven't been, I haven't been to church throughout the entire pandemic. And they said, I heard that it was your father and you know, I needed to be there. And I was like, wow. And they were just saying, um, how it, it, is it hypocritical to say how, what a joyous mass it was or how uplifting it was. And I said, no, I said, it wasn't. Um, you know, I said there were things there that um, probably aren't traditional. I sang at my father's uh, funeral, um, which is something that I do normally. Mm -hmm. um, was it difficult? Yes, um, but I got through it. Um, but a lot of people just like they didn't realize who who I like. They knew the name George Schaffrilla, parish business manager, blah blah. Um, but they were more encouraged. They were like, "Wow, we're going to try to come back." It seems to be like a a vibrant parish. So. Wow, see? Out of, out of something negative, <laughs> so to yeah, speak. Yeah, sure. Come about. Yeah, that's terrific example. Thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, Absolutely. Can I say something? Please, yes. Yes. Um, uh, in, in, the, in the beginning, yes. In the beginning of the pandemic, um, th there was a lot of parishes that, that were closed, and few were mm -hmm. open for uh, private prayers, and, and, you know, 
And um, so I had an idea because the parish was basically empty, even though we had the Lord, you know, Jesus in the tabernacle. Uh-huh. Many of the parishioners that went to the tabernacle, and there was li- limited uh, places that they could go around the church. Mm-hmm. So I, I came to Father Elder, which is the pastor of my parish, Monsori Vidima, and, oh. and I gave him an idea of saying to him, why don't we put the Blessed Sacrament on top of the altar table? And he kind of liked the idea. He supported me. And since, even though not, not many parishioners was not going to the church, but one voice transform everything and many of the parishioners started coming in and were doing their private prayers and they was expecting every Sunday and that was a beautiful thing uh, uh, one of the best ideas that, that I had you know and, and I do thank Father Elder for that support and most recently I was invited to uh, Albany to uh, celebrate um, a, a mass with my um, spiritual director, Father Akram. And we went there, Father Akram, he comes from a Pakistan mm-hmm. community. So the pastor of the parish, the Blessed Sacrament Parish, so he told me, the only thing you are not going to understand is the language, but everything you do in New York City, you're going to follow. and and which I did, I already know, I already know all the procedures, you know, all the, all, what to expect in the mass, even though I did not understand the language, but right. I, did, I, did, I did great. But one of the things that uh, Father Akron was telling me that the community was, did not stop talking of me, of my, my, my ministry at the altar, because they never had experience that you know they learned a lot from from me and and i am very grateful to yes. the Lord, you know to give for giving me this opportunity to serve in different communities yes even though i don't understand the language that's okay but that's it, every you know that experience taught you something and in turn you gave something to those people so that's terrific thank you daniel i appreciate uh you sharing that that's great uh, anybody else want to say anything on that? Um, Dr. Ashenau, just for yeah. a second, I, yeah. um, and I know we've talked a little about this in the past, but I do think going back all the way back to Chris's comments, mm-hmm. um, the, the answer lies in, uh, in training in many respects and education for folks like us. I mean, this is truly a discipleship model. And these are some of the some of the projects and programs I'm working in right now with with some parishes to see how does this work, not just in Brooklyn, but in, in other dioceses around the country mm-hmm. to see how does it work, because there really is a, a how to training aspect that needs to happen. Um, I was in a discussion about this today because there is an awkwardness yes. uh, to bringing these subjects up in, yes. in so if we all. Uh, what we are in Brooklyn calling the remnants, the people that are still very engaged. Mm-hmm. Um, if we are indeed then the disciples that need to go out, for most of us, what, what that entails is having to overcome that awkwardness of how do I introduce this 
in conversation? How do I bring this out into the world, into the places? Um, and for most of us, we're, we're not trained in that. And, um, and so we're experimenting with what are, what are things that do work, uh, programs that we can take out. Um, you and I have talked, you know, offline about this, about, yeah. you know, about how ministry, uh, and that's why I think this is so great, the subjects we do in this class, is because parish ministries and other ministries are really the place to introduce this. And mm -hmm. that's the thing we're experimenting with. So, so I just, um, I would just be, it, it could, and the second part to this is, is it's, it's amazing how it, it matters who the pastor is and what his, his thinking and vision is on these subjects. Um, because some pastors I have encountered that really don't believe in this concept of community and discipleship. I mean, it's extraordinary to me yeah. um, that yeah. they are, they are solely, solely focused on, on mass and the liturgy. And they don't even want to acknowledge the fact that there are people who could, could, you know, could be brought along in, in other faith communities. Um, and so like there again, it's a matter of sort of overcoming and, um, and then the last part I'll say is, is tracking, tracking the efficacy of these things, because uh, some great ideas here, but I, as a trained marketer, right. <laughs> always think, okay, so what was the follow-up? What was the efficacy? And yep. use your word, what was the effectiveness in terms of conversion? Yeah. Um, so just a couple of thoughts. So I, I'm always curious, and again, I, I hate to make you all my, you know, sort of, focus group but yeah it's great. I say these things is because we have a very engaged group here of yes. disciples yes so i'm always curious to get any kind of feedback to you know to, to these thoughts that might you know that or, or things that are happening in your parishes that you might react all of you in the group yeah that's it no that's excellent that's and i think what you said about pastors is really important that Absolutely, and I would always say this uh, when I worked in a parish, uh, to any group I was working with, to help them to understand, yes, Sunday liturgy is the most important thing we do here, and everything else flows from it. But, but it doesn't stop there, you see? So, you know, based on what you're saying, that there are some that feel that's it and nothing else. But as I used the example before, when I was talking about mission, you know, missio in Latin, dismissal, we're, we are sent forth to do something. And what we're sent forth to do is to serve in whatever way that we can. And we can't lose that connection because liturgy does not exist in isolation. It should always lead us to something else in the community yeah. always and that's important yeah I, to, to the point about the pastors to borrow from what we were saying earlier about the business community so one of the things that is done in the business community are are what are called 360 evaluations where you mm -hmm. are looking you know in at not only out but you're looking back and and i thought maybe that's a good exercise maybe for some pastors to have yeah. 360 evaluation to really get a sense that's why i liked earlier when you talked about surveys and those kinds of things 
I thought that was a fantastic idea mm -hmm. to, I mean, because real honest feedback is, is usually the best way to become self-aware. Um, well, yeah. To, uh, take our school, for example. You all know as students that you get surveys at certain times during the year because we need to collect the data of, you know, we might think we're offering the best program in the world, but what do you think about it, <laughs> you know? So the, that we do that for accreditation purposes, but for us to be self-aware of what we're doing and how effective are we in doing what we're doing. So, you know, we do it as a school, you know, so absolutely we should be doing it as a parish. And that's why, that's another reason why, if you remember going back a few sessions ago, we talked about, you know, um, uh, Ed Hannenberg's, that whole idea of re uh, relationship, uh, relational ministry, that the pastor cannot work alone. Um, some of these, uh, some priests are trying to do it alone and do everything. It, can't, it doesn't work that way. It, it, nothing will be effective if one person is trying to do it. There's a, great, there's a great program, if I mention this, I apologize, in Detroit. The Archdiocese of Detroit is launching this fantastic program mm -hmm. uh, where they call them family. It goes to early, another earlier point that you made about putting professionals in place. Mm -hmm. um, and they're, what they're doing is they're organizing their parishes into families of parishes, what they call families. And then there are, there are groups of professionals that they're putting in place that serve these families of about six or eight parishes. Not that they're combining the parishes right, necessarily, right. but they have these families of parishes that are served by a group of professionals, one of which is a very specific role as the head of evangelization um, for the, this family of parishes. So they are specific. It's a hired position. They are yes. professionals. They are trained. Um, they come out of programs like this, actually. Yes. And they are trained on how to uh, to implement these these evangelization programs in parishes and, and bring people along, create these disciple models where yeah. disciples you, then are the people going out. You, that's an excellent point um, because perhaps every parish, you know, economics is a big thing about hiring people, but every parish can't perhaps have a director of evangelization, but a deanery of parishes can. And it's, that's called, uh, I think what they refer to as shared resources. Mm -hmm. But the, the idea is that a par parish isn't going to lose out. They're, they're going to have it by, with these combined resources. So that's, that's a terrific idea. Yeah, I'm anxious to see the results. It's just yeah. starting in, in, in Detroit, and I uh -huh. work pretty closely with them, and I'm really anxious to see those results. Yeah, that's. Uh, I'd like to know more about that. You know, I know that uh, we've talked about it in the catechetical uh, field, you know, the whole idea of having a professional religious educator uh, it has gotten lost across the country. Uh, the director of religious education. We'll talk about this next uh, session, but this is a prime example. Um, the history of the director of religious education was uh, a part of a Protestant movement because of ineffective Sunday school. And so what happened was in, not, in about 1903, the professional educators, secular educators, worked with the religious leaders 
and this is was the birth of the profession of the director of religious education who was an educated trained professional on how to teach religion all right um after the second vatican council the uh with the directories and everything that you'll learn about next time um the catholic church adapted that model and i know for myself when i was a director of religious education in the diocese of rockville center i would not have been hired without a master's degree there, no way that's not the case anymore we expect a volunteer to do it that's that's detrimental to the church but on along what i'm getting at here is along what bill said that if you have a cluster of parishes not a merged but a cluster of neighboring parishes perhaps you could have one director of religious education that is working and training people in five parishes that's a model um i i don't i know of one group of parishes on long island on the south shore that um was experimenting with that a few years ago but i haven't heard anything like that but that's i think exactly what you're talking about that whole professional thing that has gotten lost that we expect that oh anybody can do that and that has harmed the formation of our young people tremendously so we're gonna you're gonna learn all about that next week uh, not next week the week after when we talk about catechetical ministry you're gonna get the real vision of the church where that's concerned because nobody nobody understands that but um you're right education training this isn't something we can make up and if we we do um it, it's we're gonna have weak parishes and um we we want to create places where people people's lives are changed yeah. people's lives to me and i yeah i don't mean to be like and of course this video stopping and starting um i don't mean to me to be like disrespectful but i do feel like when you say like i want to see where the progress has been you know or how many people actually signed up i think it's a little bit dangerous when we when we come to like a church setting for that. Cause it's like, let's say a young adult group of five kids, five kids in high school, you know, who can make such a big difference like later on, as opposed to a group of 50 kids, you know, on paper, the 50 looks like a lot more progress, a lot more involvement, a lot more, um, a lot more positive, you know? But I think, because God is good, because God is so big, he can make a difference, like with the smaller numbers. Oh, yeah. Oh, I agree. Don't, 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 misunderstand, don't misunderstand what yeah. I said. It's not, it's not about large numbers. No, good. When, I, when good. I talk about tracking, it's about, uh, remember the word I used was efficacy. Yeah. It's okay. tracking. Yeah, not of, numbers. It's not about, it's not about big numbers. It's not about big reach. It's actually about. Oh, I thought numbers. it was. Yeah. No, that's good. Thank you, Victoria, for asking, because that's important. You know, in dioceses, very often, when I worked in a parish, you have to fill out how many baptisms did you have, how many this, how many first communions. And I used to hate having to fill out that report, because uh, even the church plays a numbers game. You know, how, oh, how many uh, catech 
humans do you have for the Easter Vigil? You know what? I don't care if it's one. You know, it, it doesn't matter. Um, and and it doesn't mean you're not being effective if you only have one catechumen in your parish. That's that's being very effective that you have one, because there are parishes that have none. So that's good. Good clarification, Bill. I didn't think you meant numbers, but people would hear that and think that, because people are always, well, how many do you have? That doesn't matter. That's and, great. And, and you have to look at the long-term effect, because it's like the parable of the seed, the mustard seed. Some fall on fertile ground, some fall on weeds, some the birds eat and everything. You don't know how it's going to wind up, but as long as you spread the word and, and try and, and reach out, like Chris was saying, the marginalized and, and the forgotten, you have to reach them. You don't know which ones you're going to affect, but you have to try. And like I said, not everybody's going to jump up and say, okay, I'm going to church. But yeah. if you don't try, you don't get. Right, you plant a seed. Right. You plant a seed. Uh, and that's uh, doing the Lord's work. And that's right. great. You plant the seed and, and you know, you never know. Um, you just never know by who you are, being yourself, whether it's in your personal life, your family, your social life, or in your parish life, doesn't matter. You, when you go to work, it, you know, just be yourself and you might be planting a seed for somebody, you know? Um, you, you, and sometimes there's no way of knowing. Um, just, just let the door open. You don't know who's going to enter. You don't know who's leaving. Who's the next one? Mm -hmm. That's just right. Let, just let the door open. The door always open. Like the that. door exactly has to always be open. Open. Because you never, you just. No. Sometimes uh, you might not know for years and years and years the effect that you've had on somebody. And sometimes people will come back and tell you, but sometimes they won't. That's why I, if somebody has an effect on my, my faith life, for example, I am always um, attentive to uh, giving them my gratitude and telling them. And sometimes I do feel funny about it. And once I, was, I went on a retreat and I wanted to tell this priest about the effect that he had on me uh, going to this one retreat. And I, I felt a little funny about it. And I, I told him, and he said, no. He said, thank you. Uh, it's important for me as a priest to know that. You know, so it's like, that's the other side. Never be afraid to tell somebody if they've had an effect on your life, you know? Um, you know, and sometimes people might come to you, like George, you, that's exactly what you were saying, you know? But sometimes we don't know, but we always want to be planting those seeds. Um, the it's all about having good listening skills. And even if you don't know, know the answer, tell them you're going to get back to them or refer them to somebody who does because i've even gotten people to come you know other parishioners will talk and they're like oh no go see george or you know go to the office and they'll be able to direct you uh -huh. so it's all even if you overheat like and now with the pandemic i'm in the church mostly on sundays all day and you kind of overhear somebody saying oh where is this what is that and i'll go and i'll say are you you know i'll grab the bullets and are you is this what you're talking about okay it's here you know, you need to, uh, you know, you need to reach out to Father Antonio or Father Kerrigan or or me, you know, or whoever. Yeah. Um, 
they know, have to, exactly it, it works um yeah absolutely you know. knowing what's available to them and you know the working together um i once had a a, a mother of a student uh who um had a stillborn baby distraught and she came to me now that was totally out of my realm of expertise on how to help her but the sister who worked down the hall in social ministry i went right to and i said do you have you know a time to see this woman who's sitting in my office and i went back to the woman and i said there is somebody here who can help you you know with bereavement with burial arrangements because she wanted that it was all put together and it changed this woman's life it was just she never forgot how wonderful um you know that i helped her find the right person to talk to and then uh, the sister then talked to the pastor and we all worked together and the woman was extremely grateful so it's the working together and knowing also what's beyond your your gifts but knowing like george said of who they then can go to you know because we can't no one of us is an expert in every area but we certainly uh there are the people that we could um refer them to as well but that's a great point thank you for that terrific all right uh as a final point before we take a break i know you need a break um uh in your text uh Kathleen Cahallen in chapter 3 actually talks about this and she talks about it in the section we already spoke about that whole idea of vocation to ministry that she refers to uh, she talks about leadership in Christian community that we're called to it um and she says um in chapter 3 ministry is leading disciples so again it's alluding to this whole idea of leadership um as well in your in your text which i'm sure we talked about chapter 3 so i'm sure you've seen it but you see i knew we could bring it back into this so why don't we take a 15 minute break and then we will uh get more into the nitty gritty if you will of these uh principles of leadership skills and i really do love your comments um and hearing from all of you um that's great thank you so much so take a uh, how about we come back at 8:30 sound good okay go get a snack <laughs> see you in a little bit not the same though it's oh, not this definitely not it's no. not participating in the celebration of the mass it's watching mass bad people don't realize you know, you know. the bill still comes in every month the oil bill comes in every month right you know. well that too is a, is an issue with donations i tried to explain to a lot of people uh that would bring it up without being obnoxious about it but even though you know there's no masses going on the church still needs our donation they still need no, but they still have to pay the bill they still have it, to pay the bill right and a lot of people you know you have to remember we live in a secular age a consumer society that people pay when they're going to get something so they feel well I'm not going and getting anything so why am I paying so let, let let's be a little fair though i mean a lot of people lost work and contracts oh, and, uh, and i hear that i hear that a lot and it yeah. really bothers me because yeah, you're you know, absolutely that I mean, there are yeah. there are people that are still 
just trying and they're still bringing money, but they don't have yeah. it. So let's yeah. be very careful on judging people. Yeah, no, no, I'm not judging. But I do. I'm just saying no, in general. No, no. I do. I know. No, no, no. But no, that's an important point, and the parish has to know about it. When people are in that situation, the parish needs to know. Um, I think, you know, um, absolutely.
having a paschal character um, as the baptized that things will get better there is always hope and you know how people say i want to get back to normal I, i'm for let's get better than normal you know uh, I, i'm the first to say i miss normal but i hope what we come to in april may june is going to be better than the normal in our but church be careful in our, not push it too fast in our families everywhere i hope it's all better uh than um where we were so i i think you're all on the right track and you're thinking and that's what i love so much i'm just going to give you a couple of page numbers to go back to if you want to in chapter three um uh let's see page 57 where she talks about uh ministry is leading disciples um go back and look at that but one of the things she says leaders are defined as those who are in a position of responsibility for a group, effort or organization in guiding it to serve its primary purposes, i.e. mission, all right? Also, if you go to like page 90 to 97, uh, it's going into chapter four, um, page 95 and 96, I think. She talks about, on 95, she says, the first charism, talking about leaders, is the gift of vision. We have to have a vision. So I just wanted to, with the, I, I don't want to take the time to read it, but if you have the page numbers, you can go back and read it for yourself. All right? What was the Lead, first page number, Doctor? Oh, 57. Five, seven. All right? And then 90, 95, 9-5. She says, leaders are people who can articulate the community's vision out of its mission and garner the necessary resources to make that vision a reality. And remember, resources doesn't only mean money. Uh, we talked about that last week. It's on one of your slides, I believe, that resources is people, buildings, facilities, um, money. The bottom line in the church, it takes money to preach the gospel. A lot of people don't know that. They think it just happens, <laughs> you know. Um, but anyway, uh, you hear a lot of people saying, you know, just a practical example, because I've been in parish life my whole adult life. People come to get married, for example, and there's a church faith. Well, what do we have to pay the church to come and get married? They question it. Well, there's a reason for it. And we can go down the line from the lights on, the heat on, the air conditioner. You gotta pay it's, for catering all. <laughs> you know, but, well, anyway, uh, just an example. Let's move on, because we don't have a lot of time. And I wanna get through this. You're doing great, I think. So, leadership is a function not a position okay you might have positions in the parish but it's it's a function it's an i believe it's an art it's an art form um the focus of leadership is in relationships jim brought this up regarding business how important relationships care and service are 
Um, the goal of leadership is to motivate others to share in responsibility. Okay? So let, let me elaborate on all this. Leadership is particularly important in our time, I think, because we must demonstrate the viability and the possibilities that we have through the church. You know, the church has always throughout history had such an effect on the world. A lot of people are not aware of that, you know, but the church throughout its history has really had a positive effect on the world. I mean, just go back not too far to the papacy of John Paul II. Uh, he was so instrumental in so many um, things throughout the world, politically, religiously, etc. So the idea here is, is, as pastoral leaders, we need to be eager. You know, we need to have that enthusiasm that I talked about uh, in the first weeks of the class. And we need to be eager learners. As Bill brings up so often, how important it is to be formed. You know, we, we need to want to um, learn. We need to want to read the book. You know, I've often said to students, you should be hungry. To, especially if a student will say to me, oh, we have to read all that. You should be hungry, starving to read this. So a leader uh, really needs to be eager to learn. And we need to figure out ways to invite other people to want to learn. I would not have, I would not be sitting here tonight teaching you if somebody 40 years ago didn't say, I think you should go to the seminary and study theology. Because I had some leadership ministerial skills and it was my pastor who said that. And I, my reaction was, me, do that? But then I prayed with it and thought about it and said, I can do that. You see? So he was, uh, he offered me that invitation to do that. We need to do that for other people. Listen, one of the biggest things in our school, uh, other than uh, deacon candidates, but people like Victoria, uh, who are in our program, it's because somebody else told them about it, you know? Um, and that's word of mouth is the biggest way that people come and say, well, somebody told me and I want that. I want to come here. But we, we need to do that on a parish level as well. Because, and the other thing is, is that leaders model behavior. Um, and when we do that, we can motivate others um, to, um, to want to emulate our behavior. And then again, want to share in responsibility. There are basically the um, theories of leadership would say there are born leaders, there are made leaders, and not, and some people are not meant to be leaders. Some people work good under a leader and they can do anything that the leader will ask them to do. You know, in, in my other class, I was talking about an 88 year old woman that we had on the initiation team. 
She wasn't a catechist, but she said, I'm here, I'll do anything you ask me to do. She was great at hospitality. She was great at making sure everybody had a cup of coffee and everybody was comfortable and had a place to sit and take care of all of those things. So she was most happy to do anything. So there are people like that as well. But the one thing I want to bring up, because the, um, those of you who are deacon candidates, ordination expects leadership. And the slide says as priests, uh, future priests and deacons, because in this class in the past, I've had some priests, I've had some seminarians, but mostly um, deacon candidates. But the, th the thing about it is that um, God willing, as you um, approach ordination to the diaconate, um, it, people expect you to be a leader uh, in your parish community. So in your formation, uh, all the dimensions of your formation, intellectual, which this is all about, but in your human, spiritual, and pastoral, you need to discover your gifts, your charisms, and develop good leadership skills from here. Uh, that will be, because it'll be expected of you um, um, as, as somebody who's ordained, okay? So here we go, the best model we have. Jesus is the model for leadership, no doubt about it. You know, as when we read the, um, when I introduce you to catechetical documents, we're gonna see that Jesus teaches us how to be a catechist. But Jesus teaches us how to be a model. So for example, I have up here, the road to Emmaus. You're all familiar with that gospel story. We get some insight into the type of leader he was. And you see the bullet points. He approaches the disciples with questions. He didn't come on like, you know, um, a bulldozer. He just walked along, he watched, he waited, he listened, right? But he approached with questions like, what's going on here? What are people talking about, right? He leads them to reflect on their experience. They didn't even know that but he led them to do it. He ultimately leads them to recognize God in their midst. Remember the story? It's coming back to you, right? And then what does he do? He sends them on mission to share the, the good news. He does it, you see? Um, and then of course, in the washing of the feet, um, the gospel we hear on Holy Thursday evening, <coughs> You know, he, he directs them towards service. He says, do you realize what I have done for you? He got down and he did the work of a slave. And that's what he, as a leader, he was their leader, but he was showing them what you must do. So we need to do that as well. So Jesus is the ultimate model, but there's other models of leadership. St. Francis, right? 5,000 followers within a few years. That's incredible, right? Um, and this is one of my favorite examples of leadership. In Mark 2, we hear the story of the paralytic at Capernaum. And we read about four people who opened up the roof over the spot where Jesus was. 
You remember the story? They couldn't get in the door. So these friends of this uh, person on a stretcher who couldn't walk, they decide to open the roof and lower their friend down, right? Because Jesus was there. These four people who did that were leaders. They figured out how to make something important happen. You see, that's one of my favorite leadership examples, that those four people who figured out a way, they just didn't go away and say, oh, forget it, we can't do it. They figured it out. So I, I love that. Keep that in mind. Keep St. Francis in mind and absolutely keep Jesus in mind. So we want to look at some styles of leadership. As you know, I'm sure you've experienced there were different styles of leadership. I've worked with enough people um, in schools and in parishes to know that there were different ways of um, leading others. Um, there are basic styles of leadership that involve task and relationship. Again, here we go, what Jim talked about in business, that idea of relationship. Uh, these often need to be modified for a new experience. For example, I used the experience when I went into a new parish. I had to adapt my style of working with people who weren't so excited to make changes quickly, right? So um, it's in order to develop our leadership style, it's helpful to look at the parish structure and the culture. See, it all goes back to what we talked about last week uh, and which came up again uh, tonight. We need to know when we talk about styles of leadership in the pastoral setting, we need to understand our parish. So look at the structure, look at the culture, evaluate it, learn its strengths, its weaknesses, its opportunities, and its threats, you know? And, and learn from it. Uh, we, we need to know what's the climate here. Is it a welcoming a community? How does it feel? Are there tensions here? Are there conflicts? Uh, and then we, we evaluate it. Um, because there's no perfect place, uh, no matter what. There's always um, going to be something going on that we need to work in relationship to figure out and work with and develop our leadership skills. Um, let's see, there's going to be, I already said that, about the strengths, um, weaknesses, etc. okay? So once we evaluate the parish, then we can develop a plan. Uh, this is the task of the pastoral leader. And the ideal, remember, is to have a team of leaders, that it's the pastor uh, working with people around him who are the experts in particular fields. That's the ideal. The leader has to determine how to get things done, how to promote the quote unquote investment. The parish is the investment. How do we promote this? You know, uh, there is a marketing, Bill talked about this, but there are marketing strategies, uh, not gimmicks. I'm not for gimmicks or anything, 
but there are ways um, of, that we would learn, know that as good, effective leaders, we know how to inspire and encourage others. How to boost morale, for example. In other words, the leader has to give constant attention to how people perceive the parish. Leaders have to be supportive and giving. They need to, they need to earn uh, trust. Remember last week I told you I used to go to the mother's club, the father's club, cocktail parties to get to know people. I wanted people to trust me as a parish leader, you know? I wanted them to get to know me and trust me. So when I was um, perhaps uh, conducting a parent meeting, they, they met me at a party and they, a parish function, what I mean by that. Um, and then they, there would just naturally be more trust. Oh, I talked to her about her family. She's a wife, she's a mother, et cetera, et cetera. Um, being helpful, leaders are helpful. They're creative, they're idealistic. I, there's always hope. I'm one of those people, the glass is always half full, no matter what, it's never half empty. It's like Victoria was saying, if five young adults or young people are um, influenced by something in the parish, that's wonderful. We also need to be process orientated. Things take time. They don't always happen overnight. And then the other thing about leaders, they need to take control. They need to be controlling, but not in a bad way. <laughs> controlling in a good way. In other words, they're risk takers. They, they, take, they might take risks. Uh, developing a new program. I once took a risk and developed a whole parent program where I did away with first grade religious education for the children. And we had what was called a parent program. And we taught the parents how to teach their children for one year. I took a risk, but it was very effective. Probably 98% um, trusted in it. Um, so, we were willing, I had the support of the pastor and the pastoral staff, et cetera. So we took a risk and we said, okay, let's try this. Let's get the parents involved as the primary educators of their children. The other thing is, is um, task orientated, you know, being willing to do things, you know, take on things. Planners, good planners, if that's important. Organizers. You know, you have to be a good, effective leader. You have to um, be organized. You have to like a challenge. Uh, this is um, what your final um, exam is going to be like, that you're going to show me some of these leadership skills um, about process um, and a challenge, taking on something. Uh, how do you, uh, how do you take on a task in a parish? If your pastor was to ask you to be the coordinator uh, for the RCIA, how, what steps are you going to take to do that? The other thing is leaders have to be logical. 
They are fact finders. They're data orientated and um, structure. Um, I think when I look at myself, um, somebody who's been a leader for over 35 years, a pastoral leader, an educational leader, I think I have a little bit of all of these things. Uh, some people are heavier on some things than the other, and that's okay. But the whole idea is to know the skills and know what you are good at and where you would uh, fit in here. But they're all principles and styles of leadership. Um, just um, a personal note on styles of leadership. When I was very new to ministry, I was very, very attuned to the relationship model and being very sensitive to people who were um, assigned to work with me. And I happened to work in a parish with a person who was not like that. She was a top-down, not a leading from the center. She was much older than I was and had an older model in her mind, I think, um, as I look back. But my point here is this. We, it created a tension because we were uh, co-workers and we had a staff working with us. And I walked into the general office one day in the parish and said to the administrative assistant, could you do me a favor? That was my style. We're working together. I'm going to ask you to come and work with me on something. The other woman who had a total different style took me out of the room, said, I need to talk to you. She said, don't ever ask anybody. She waved her finger at me. It's an observation, not a judgment. It was her style. She said, don't ask anybody to do you a favor. Just tell them what to do. You see the difference in style? I was, let's do this together, not you do this for me. Different, different styles. I think the relationship style, the relational model of, um, pastoral leadership uh, is much more effective, um, leading from the center. And it is supported by um, recent uh, leadership literature, both in the secular and the religious world. Um, okay, um, oops, sorry. Um, so I already talked about this. Sorry, I forgot it was on the slide. I apologize but you have it. I went through that already. Uh, this is a concept of uh, leadership that I think is worth um, introducing you to, servant leadership. And I think Jesus was the ultimate servant leader. But here's a book uh, by Robert Greenleaf. Um, here's a little bio on him. Uh, he was. He lived from 1904 to 1990. He was the founder of the modern servant leadership movement and the Greenleaf Center for Servant Leadership. He went to work for AT&T, then the American Telephone and Telegraph Company. Uh, for the next 40 years, he researched management, development, and education. Did anybody ever hear of this? Those of you in business? Okay, well, it's a biz this, this grew out of a business model. Uh, and he, um, he writes several 
there are volumes on this. Uh, the original was written by him and then people wrote about it. But uh, if you go on Amazon and just put in servant leadership, you'll find a lot of things. But um, he says that the servant leader is servant first, like Jesus, right? Uh, the needs of others are a high priority. See, from what I remember and I understand in reading about this, and when I studied leadership, I was so interested in this. It really attracted me. Um, he saw that the people that worked for AT&T, there was low morale, things. He just didn't think things were right. So he kind of invented this whole idea about the leader having to be there to boost the morale, to be supportive, etc. Um, and the thing also he does bring up, I think he was a Quaker. Uh, yes, he was, he was a Quaker. Um, and he really wanted to develop a better perspective of leadership in his company. Um, but he also feels that the churches can be examples to other institutions. And he notes the root meaning of religion in his writings, which is religio, meaning to knit together. So religion is meant to bring us together. So leaders, servant leaders, need to know how to bring people together in the best, most effective way. So if you're interested, um, it's really something worth having on your shelf. I probably have about five books related to this topic uh, on my shelf uh, behind me. So I want to intro just introduce you to it. Here's another resource, uh, Spirit Linking Leadership by Donna Markham. And she's, if the subtitle is Working Through Resistance, to organizational change. Um, she says that uh, basically this is a book about leadership and conflict. And as I mentioned before, there nothing is in a parish is ever going to be perfect. And if you think it is, it's not. There's always something that needs to change or get better. But she says that leadership is the ability to know how to relate to others on a human level. During times of conflict or when faced with obstacles, the leader needs to know how to heal and guide toward healthier, enriching ways of interaction. And that is really, really important because in my experience in pastoral settings, um, there is often conflict. I'll give you an example of a great leader, a pastor, Monsignor Jim Kelly, that I had for many years. We, this was around the time uh, when the uh, sexual abuse crisis first came uh, to the surface. There was a lot of conflict um, among the pastoral staff. And I've mentioned before, there were like 19 of us on the pastoral staff. And um, he recognized that there was conflict among some of us, particularly over the issue. Because sadly, we had a priest in our parish who was accused and then put out of the parish. But anyway, 
what he did was he brought us all to a retreat house for a whole day. So he brought us on retreat and the retreat director was aware that there were some, there was some conflict uh, with us and um, everything changed after that day. It was a brilliant, brilliant way of helping us to deal with the conflict and be open and honest and prayerful about it. Um, this book, you know, that's what it's about. Um, so in other words, the example I give you is doing what this book proposes, coming face to face to look at the situation, entering into dialogue, most of all, showing you care for each other. That pastor showed, number one, was showing that he cared for all of us by bringing us together. And ultimately, we were we went we came face to face with the situation. We entered into dialogue, and ultimately, we were showing that we cared for each other. The other thing is, and this is something that I know I need to work with: we need to respond, not react. You know, sometimes we have a knee-jerk reaction during a conflict, but we have to know how to sometimes step back and know how to respond to it instead of being defensive right away, you know? Uh, so that's a skill that you acquire. Confront the behavior, not the person. Very often we confront the person rather than uh, just addressing the behavior. Um, and then the other thing that uh, Donna Markham brings up, there's more than one answer to a problem, you know? Um, so there's a lot of good things that you can learn in that research, uh, resource about working through resistance. Um, let's see. Conflict is often the result of different leadership styles. This is something that I experienced firsthand in a parish. Um, I once worked with people who needed to show that they were more competent than the rest of us. Um, that was the dynamic going on, and I figured that out. I had to work closely with two people on um, the pastoral staff, and there was this constant conflict. And I finally came to that realization, and we ended up uh, working after many years, we ended up working wonderfully together. But that was the problem. We had different leadership styles. Um, they had no, uh, basically, uh, to begin with, they had no patience with a collaborative model. They just wanted to do their own thing in their own ministry. Um, and basically, they just thought their way was better than everybody else's way. Um, they, they could only see their way and that, that created real tension. And, um, basically, uh, Donna Markham, she has a chapter called leading for the common good. And basically what she's getting back to is she's emphasizing the importance of mission. You know, we're not, we're leaders for the sake of the mission not for the sake of what I think. Um, so that's important. She says, 
Um, at issue is the ability of leaders to maintain clarity about the mission and purpose of the corporation as it seeks to serve the uh, global common good. Um, and that was something that uh, with these two people that I had conflict with, we eventually worked that we were um, with different leadership styles, we were, we had the mission in mind and the common good. And um, I would say of the 22 years we worked together, the, it took 10 years to get there, but the last 10 years were terrific, or terrific. Um, so I just quickly, because I don't want to run out of time, but I'm just wondering if you, any of you can think of any examples from your own experience of conflict. Well, you know what? I want you to think about it, okay? And then maybe at the end? It is just that there's so oh, many There's so, so many in the parish that you don't know when to begin or when to stop. Oh, you have to prioritize, and you have to figure out, well, what needs to be addressed? Yeah. You know, one at a time. Figure out what's... We, we must go on, on, on those uh, uh, retreats more often. Ah! <laughs> yeah, that's a great way. That's a great way. Here's another book for you. Um, this is relatively new, uh, Redeeming Conflict. I have a copy here as well. This, and this is, uh, Donna Markham is not necessarily uh, talking about religious institutions, but Anne Garrido, who I have met and gone to workshops she's given, uh, she, she teaches homiletics at Aquinas University, um, a woman teaching homiletics, pretty interesting, right? But anyway, she, she has uh, several books. Her first was Redeeming Administration, uh, 12 Spiritual Habits for Catholic Leaders. But this one I bring up because we're talking about conflict. Uh, but anyway, this book identifies 12 practices for Christian communities striving to live the Trinitarian life. She uses the Trinity as her example of relationship and community. Um, to which they have been invited, 12 Habits for Living Communion and Diversity Well, Even When It's Really Tough, quote unquote. Lucas, get this book. <laughs> and, and she'll teach you how to do it, step by step. step Doctor, are you looking for an example of conflict? Sure, if you have one that you want to talk about, and how, uh, you, how you resolved it, or... It wasn't my conflict. I could tell you when I... Okay. I was first, um, this is a long time ago, Father Bisignano, who had ju who's just recently passed away from COVID, um, when he first became our pastor, uh, I, I'm curious as, as to how other parishes do this today. But we used to have elections for our parish council. Uh huh. Okay. Prior to Father Bisignano coming to our parish. And after he had been in our parish for about a year, he said, I want to move to selection for parish council. Okay. So it's like when I got appointed trustee, he asked a few parishioners, you know, I need another trustee. Who would you recommend? And ultimately, he picked somebody. Right. So when he came, after about a year in our parish, he 
and when I became trustee, I went to my first ever parish council meeting. And uh, when he had told the parish council he wanted to move to selection for the parish council, in other words, what he wanted to do was to get recommended, well, you know, the president of the parish council, that position's gonna become open. And he would get a couple of names of who would be a good president and he would literally pick out of a hat. Uh-huh. Next president would be. And um, the current president of our parish council just could not accept doing it this way after doing elections. Oh, yeah, so something new. And, yeah. and it was it was a conflict to this day. I don't know if it ever got resolved. But I had never seen, to be honest with you, and I had, of course, Father Bizignano's one who, who was my original sponsor in the Diaco. Right, program. right. But this president, I also have, I still see her today, a lot of respect for, very, very good leader, but for somebody who just couldn't, who really just went at it with our pastor, you know? Uh, yeah. I, it was really sad to see. And yes. I remember going home and telling my wife, boy, I, I would have never thought people would conflict. Yeah. Council meeting the way this did. See, that's a reaction. That's, you know, she reacted to it instead of responding to it. It's the way you do things. In pastoral ministry, I can't emphasize it enough. It's the way a person does something. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the complaints of newly ordained is that we, and I have heard this, um, because they come back, uh, they have sessions when they come back, because being newly ordained in a parish is, can be a difficult thing. So they come back for support. They say, well, you know, I have all these women yelling at me and telling me what to do. See, that's not the way. Nobody should act that way, mm -hmm. you know? Um, it's just, um, there needs to be somebody in a leadership position that's going to help people when people do react mm -hmm. because it's it really can um i you know just to say it bluntly turn people off particularly pastors um they don't want to constantly be criticized i experience it in the parish mm -hmm. that uh, that i go to there's a woman i've known for years and she's the priests that are there now are doing things very well, but very differently than they were done in the past, okay? And she doesn't like it. Well, you know, and she's, my point here is she's constantly going up to them and telling them she doesn't like it. That's really not the, the way. Right. That, that's a reaction, not a response. You know, certainly she could um, make an appointment with the pastor and she could say, can you help me to understand why you've changed this or why you're doing that? Mm -hmm. See, because of, you know, what I do, I understand what they're trying to do. I can see it. Do I agree 100% with all of it? No. Are they trying to create a prayerful uh, community? Yes. Um, but some people don't see it that way, and then they then there is a conflict. Mm -hmm. So that that one line there that was up there, don't react, respond, mm -hmm. go into dialogue, you know, and really um, 
No, and, and this particular book really does take you step by step of how to, to um, enter into conversation when there is conflict. And listen, and, and I'll say it too, sometimes I do react, uh, you know, in, in, in a Dean's We've done that. <laughs> we all do, you know, yeah. but then I have to say, okay, you know, let me, let me stop and see, and let's have a dialogue. Why are you saying this, you know, but because there are some people that just want it their way, you know, um, and, you know, then I, I know in my, um, my style is, well, let me try to work around everybody, you know, so we need to, this is something that I think all of us as pastoral leaders need to work on, um, the, this whole idea of how do we handle conflict uh, in the best possible way, because there's always going to be conflict, always. Uh, now there's some techniques, here we go. Um, you wanna begin with the positive. You see, this is a mistake sometimes we make. It's like when I, when I grade your papers, what's the first thing I say? Your work is well done. <laughs> and then I'll give you my, but, but your format was wrong or whatever, but I'll always begin with the positive because that's the right thing. I'll begin with the positive statement, you know? Listen and respond with care. Um, specify, the second one, specify your concern. I have a concern of how things go at our meeting, you know? And then listen to the other person and then respond, don't react. And the key here is to problem solve together. Understand, in your case, Stephen, um, try to help the people in the parish understand why, I, the, as a pastor, I prefer not to have elections, but I prefer to choose people that I feel will work with me and work with my vision and mission of the church that we can all work together, you see? So problem solve together. Um, talk about it brainstorm together brainstorm together let's sometimes we'll say let's and i remember in the parish uh let's dream if we could have anything we want what would we list you know and then we would look at the reality but let's let's think about what we would love to have then you evaluate you brainstorm then you evaluate and then the key here is then let's spell out the uh, solution uh, to it. Um, and I know from several conflicts in parish life that when it's done this way, it can work. But the key is to have a leader and uh, just quickly, cause I don't want to waste time. We, we once had a conflict between me and the school principals on how we were gonna do something with the, the kids preparing for First Communion. And the pastor brought his idea to the three of us. And I totally didn't like his idea at all. I thought it was just terrible. But I didn't say it that way. Uh, but I said, and he, he, he had a sense, he said, I don't think, he said, I am convinced you don't agree with me. 
and I said, I, I, I agree with the principle, but I don't agree with how you want to go about doing this. Could we talk more about it? And he said, absolutely. Let's the three of us. He said, this is what I'd like to see. I see you're uncomfortable with it in practice. Let's meet again. We spent a whole summer and then we came to a solution that fulfilled what he wanted to see, but it took away um, his way of doing it to see it. Perhaps it wasn't the best way to do it. I know I'm being evasive because I don't want to reveal the issue, but the, the point was he just didn't say, no, too bad. I know you don't like it. We're doing it my way. And some pa pastors would have, but he didn't. He re And I'll never forget him for that, that he said, I know you are uncomfortable with this. Because it had to do, it was a liturgical issue as well. But uh, he said, I know you're uncomfortable with it, but we came to a solution that we were all happy with. That was, he was a good leader. He is a good leader still, okay? So these are techniques uh, to resolve conflict. So um, pastoral leaders, pastoral staffs. I know I emphasized this whole idea of pastoral staffs. They don't always exist, but in good, uh, ministry theory, they should. As I said before, no uh, pastor should try to act alone. It is not a good idea. Um, so these are some qualities. Pastoral leaders of, and people on pastoral staffs, okay, with, who are pastoral leaders. And they need to be, re we, we all, we're talking about us, we need to be reflective and prayerful or else we're not going to help other people be reflective and prayerful so we have to start with ourselves we said this before you know know who you are be yourself but primarily be a person of, of prayer and reflection because that is going to make you a better leader okay make that a priority in your life and those of you in the diaconate you know that from your spiritual formation but for the rest of us, laymen and women, um, I got news for you. Um, in the documents on lay ministry, it's the same dimensions of formation, intellectual, spiritual, human, and pastoral for any leader in the church. It goes for priestly formation, diaconate formation, and lay formation for leaders. So prayer and reflection. I brought up the whole point that um, my pastor brought us on retreat. Um, we were reflective and prayerful as a group. We had retreat days twice a year, twice a year, a whole day. He said, everybody drops everything and took us to a retreat house. Now there were people on the staff that balked about it and said, well, I'm so busy. I have things to do. And he said, none of us are too busy. We need to go on retreat. And we were energized by it. We came back and we were better for it. The other thing was social gatherings. Every, um, every two weeks, um, we had a, sta a pastoral staff meeting followed by lunch because he felt he this is the same pastor that took us on retreat. 
he felt it was very important for us to share a meal together. He said, we're not just going to meet for two hours and talk about the business of the parish. He said, we're going to do that, and then we're going to sit at table together uh, and have this social gathering. And he really was um, uh, about sustaining each other. He used to tell us, we need to care for each other. You know, and so those uh, were really important things that made us work better together. Um, to compare st his style with the person before him who sadly collapsed and died suddenly, he was a wonderful man, but as a leader, his style was what I would refer to as parallel ministry. We never came together. Everybody was out there doing their own thing. And we never came together because as a leader, he didn't know how to bring us together like this. This works a lot better. We were happier. We were more productive. We learned from each other. We knew each other better with this style. And it's the style that's the vision of the church. So good pastoral leaders have a commitment to the community. They're knowledgeable about the tradition. They have vision. They're imaginative. They have courage. <laughs> it takes a lot of courage, right? And this is important. Take Sabbath time. That means take time for yourself to rest, to pray, to be reflective. And don't feel guilty about it because taking that Sabbath time, which is very hard for me, I could work seven days a week, but there's, like this afternoon, I worked from nine o'clock this morning, and then at four o'clock I stopped for two hours before I got energized for tonight. But I said, I, I had to really talk myself into it and say, take two out, just stop for two hours and go be reflective. And I went and I, I meditated on the Sorrowful Mysteries for two hours you know, in a room by myself. But that's important because it does, in the long run, energize us. And it's important with whatever you're doing, whether it's even your studies, you know, and I'm the first to say studying is so important, but sometimes you have to put it aside. So, uh, and I promise we're almost finished. In fact, this is the last slide and then some reminders. What this all boils down to is leadership is about facilitating the mission. Uh, what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, that whole idea of having, of knowing the mission, number one of the church, what's the mission of the church? What's the vision of the church? And that involves study. Uh, Bill always brings up how important that is. Um, if we're going to facilitate the mission of the church, we better understand the mission of the church. And then out of that, you develop, well, in this parish, this is what our goal is. So leadership is about that. All right. Um, remember, no class next week. Happy St. Patrick's Day uh, to you. You're going to be working on your reflection paper, your integration paper. I'm giving you um, that time to do that. And we, ex you. we extended it from tonight to next week. Mm -hmm. So the next time we meet will be March 24th. 
And our topic will be, see, now we're going to really narrow down into individual ministries. And I picked some of the primary ones. There are others, but I picked some of the primary ones that if we understand, they have implications for everything that we do. But at the top of the list, I put catechetical ministry because it's one of the most misunderstood ministries across the country. And um, any pastoral leader has to understand um, the vision of the church where catechetical ministry is concerned. So be prepared for that. Uh, one final thing, it's 9.31, I don't want to keep you. Uh, but if you have any a final thought, comment, question, I'm ready for it. Are you all good? Did it all make sense? Yeah. Yeah? Thumbs up? Yeah? That's all. I want you to be, I want you to understand. I want you to be uh, filled with joy and enthusiasm <laughs> for all of this. Okay? Uh, I know it's mid, it's past midterm and I know life is exhausting. Uh, school is exhausting. But um, you're, you're all hanging in there very, very well. I, I really have to say, uh, from what I, I see, you know, you, you're, you all still have that spark. You haven't lost the spark. And that's important. Stay positive. Have what I refer to as a Paschal character. I think it's important for the pastoral minister to always know that the Paschal mystery, death and resurrection, is our worldview. That there's always hope. That even when we die, and I don't mean physical death here, um, you know, the daily ups and downs, we will rise from it. We have to have, that's our vision right there. And we have to have that as students, as people, as human beings, as Catholic Christians. That's an important way to view the world, that there's always hope. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, a world without end. Amen. Thank you, everybody. And I appreciate hearing from all of you. Uh, there's a couple of you I haven't heard from yet. I want to hear from you. I'm getting, I give you credit for all your participation. All right. Thank you. Yes. Excellent. Thank I'll you. your vaccine next week. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, I, I have hope. I, it'll be all right. It'll be fine. <laughs>